listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us every week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. It's been a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, marked recently with a visit by Joe Biden to Kyiv. While the war rages on with no end in sight, a recent article by the Sufan Centre is asking, how has the war in Ukraine shaped the global order? To dive deeper, I've got Keith with me. To start us off, Keith, did you ever think we'd see this conflict last a year? No. My predictions I was making a year ago, which just shows how bad I am at making predictions, foreshadowed the Russians because of their sheer size of population overrunning Ukraine and that Ukraine would be carrying out some type of protracted guerrilla struggle. In fact, the Russian invasion was halted fairly quickly. The Russians have got 20% of Ukrainian land, but they certainly didn't get the big capital city or the other major cities. So the war has gone differently from what a number of us were predicting. It's dragging on. It's interesting. General Mike Millay, the head of the US Defence Force, some months ago said that this could drag on for months, if not years, and Mm. he was criticised. But in fact, he seems to have turned out to be correct, that uh, I think Putin is dragging it out in the hope that eventually Western countries will just drop their support of Ukraine. They will just become exhausted. They'll say, look, we've done our best. We've tried to help Ukraine, but now we've got other issues closer to home, etc. At the moment, we don't see any sign of that, but that is obviously Putin's long-term strategy. Mm. If you think back to the big picture, Russia over the centuries, so this is not just a, a new thing with the communists, Russia over the centuries has always had more people in its population than any of the surrounding countries, leaving aside China. So it's always had, for example, more people than in Poland or Germany. And so Russia has operated like a steamroller. It's slow to get started, but is then remorseless once it is started. And it then just grinds away and wears others down. It's a war of attrition. Mm. In other words, that at the end of the day, there'll always be some Russians left standing where all the other people have been wiped out. And Putin, I think, is just maintaining that same tradition It doesn't sound much progress in human affairs that we're back to a a system of warfare which characterised World War I with just raw numbers. But you've got 140 million Russians up against 44 million Ukrainians. So you'd have to say that ultimately the Russians have got the numbers on their side. What the Ukrainians have benefited from, of course, has been the introduction of Western equipment. Not fast enough, in my view. I think we should be sending in more and more of it. The longer we delay it, the more Ukrainians get killed. But it is interesting the West is helping to keep Ukraine ticking over. The Americans get the credit, but it's the Poles who are doing the work, you know, Mm. in terms of per capita assistance. Poland, which itself has been a victim of Russian aggression in the past, has a lot of sympathy for Ukraine and is supplying a lot of assistance and also looking after the refugees as they're fleeing Ukraine. But certainly... I didn't expect the war to go in the way that it has now gone. Yeah, and the article I mentioned in the intro discusses that there's been this reshaping of geopolitical dynamics. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the world has been transformed 
as a result of February of last year. And you actually got, when it comes to February, as the article reminds us, there are two Februaries we can talk about. So we've got February 24, 2022, which is the beginning of the Russian invasion. And so we've just marked the first anniversary. However, you can go back to February 27, 2014, which is when they invaded Crimea. So in a sense, you've got two February anniversaries that we could be marking. Is there something significant with February or is it just a coincidence? Well, I think the significance is that it's a good time to invade. Right. It's interesting. Clausewitz, the writer on war 200 years ago, talked about friction in warfare. Mm. Friction is the stuff that sort of gums up machines and your automobile, which is why it's got to keep lubricated, etc. And the same thing happens in warfare, that you can end up with, say, um, a heavy rainstorm on the uh, battlefield of Waterloo the night before the French cavalry decide to charge the Duke of Wellington's forces, and they get bogged down in the slush. And the same thing happens in Europe still to this day. Weather is still very important. So you want the ground either to be frozen solid or you want it to be dried out during the summer months. So they went for the time, obviously, when the ground was fairly solid, which is when they could carry out both of their invasions. One was more successful than the other. They got away with invading Crimea because the Americans really didn't put up much of a struggle at all. Whereas this time around, invading the mainland of Ukraine, if I might use that expression, suddenly the international community was appalled at what has happened and therefore decided to get in to support Ukraine, which has meant the Russians have had to fight even harder. Hence, we've had these appalling human rights violations. Who would you say are the big global players in this conflict outside of Russia and Ukraine, obviously? Well, they're all the NATO countries. They've come in generally and been supportive. The French and the Germans have not been enthusiastic supporters. Remember, the Germans had, at the time of the Cold War, pioneered Ostpolitik, in other words, looking east, trying to improve relations with the then communist bloc. They then became heavily reliant upon Russian energy with the collapse of the old Soviet Union. So the the Germans have a a latent sympathy for the Russians, ironically, given the amount of suffering on both sides Mm. in World War II. Mm -hmm. The Germans have have certainly been reinvented in the peace since 1945. So they have not been as fully active as one would like, although that, that is now beginning to change. Another major player has been India, which is also traditionally a supporter of Russia. The Indians are eroding the international sanctions push by continuing to trade with Russia, as is China. China's doing well out of this as well. So the Russians, in their desperation, are selling their energy to anybody who wants to buy it, bearing in mind the West have said, we're not going to buy it. And so India and China are getting energy on the cheap mm-hmm. thanks to the, the international sanctions. And, of course, we're not sure really what China's long-term game is. In the last few days, we've had China trying to put itself forward as this neutral intermediary, the, the country that's going to try to create some sort of peace process. I think that's a waste of time at this juncture, but that's what China is doing. But at the same time, it is showing broad sympathy for Russia. So I don't think the Ukrainians will be taking them seriously as a neutral intermediary. The interesting 
dynamic that caught my eye in this article was talking about the US as one and then China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. Could you explain that a little bit better in terms of what the dynamic is there? Yeah. So Russia doesn't have too many close military allies. It has countries that are sympathetic to it, like India. But when it comes to acquiring military equipment, it's certainly importing weaponry from Iran. They're the drones, very slow moving. They're called flying lawnmowers. (laughs) (laughs) And they're kamikaze. Kamikaze means that they fly into the target Mm. and blow up the target and blow themselves up. Mm -hmm. Whereas really sophisticated drones fly over the target, drop the explosive and then return to base to get the next lot of explosives. So the Iranians are using their kamikaze drones. North Korea is also offering to supply weaponry. China is, as we speak, thinking about whether or not it will supply weaponry. In other words, go beyond just simply the oral support that it gives the the Russians at the UN and, and elsewhere. But it's interesting how very few military allies Russia actually has got in this struggle. Of course, you've got people who are wanting to call an end to the hostilities. But that would mean that if the war ended today, that Russia will finish the war with about 20% of Ukrainian territory, which is not acceptable to the Ukrainians. Mm. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter, and this week we're examining the shift in the global dynamic since the start of the war in Ukraine. I'm interested what Western allied nations have been up to in the last year. Where's the standing there? Well, I think the Western countries have grudgingly supported Ukraine. Britain, to its credit, has uh, been very outspoken in its support. Remember, we've had this debate about whether or not Western tanks should be supplied. Ukraine is basically still fighting with old Soviet equipment and they've got their eye on modern Western tanks and the British have supplied Challenger tanks and that then uh, set a precedent for the Americans to follow and then ultimately the Germans. They've got the best tanks. Their Leopard tanks are ideal. And so they are now going to be made available for Ukrainians, but it will take a while for them to learn. This is really new technology. So it's going to take a while for them to be trained to make the most of it. I would expect to see the tanks being fully operational by April or May of this year. The ground will also be hard enough, will have dried out, mm. been suitable for that type of warfare. I'm actually, I've got to say, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about this year. I think we will see even more suffering this year than last year because the Russians have now been able to mobilise about another third of a million troops for the struggle, not necessarily well-trained, certainly not well-behaved, mm. um, but the, the Russian style of fighting is that you just overwhelm the other side with sheer force of numbers. Mm. And if Russians perish, well, so be it. That's what happens in war. So I'm expecting the Russians to be stepping up their side of the, of the campaign. Meanwhile, of course, the West will be arming Ukraine, the Ukrainians, they're not supplying Western aircraft as we speak. That that's the next one on the Ukrainian shopping list. They're sort of the West is is saying to Putin, in effect, we're not dashing to the assistance of the Ukrainians, but we will gradually ratchet up our level of assistance. 
In my view, we should have been supplying tanks and aircraft months ago. If the theory of deterrence is going to work, then you must make it obvious to the other side that you are willing to deter them. And this weakness, this shilly-shallying around that we're seeing with the Western countries is actually sending a message to Putin that perhaps the West is not as strong in all of this as you know they try to portray. And so I think it's very worrying that we're not doing more faster to assist the Ukrainians. And of course, also keeping an eye on the proceedings is China. Mm. China has an intention at some point to invade Taiwan, which I think will be another disaster. But remember, warfare doesn't decide who's right, only who's left. Mm -hmm. In other words, that you don't solve your problems through warfare. All it'll do is decide who's going to be left. In the case of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, the Taiwanese will have seen how the Ukrainians can stave off a Russian attack. The warfare will be different because the Chinese have got to get a across a waterway yeah. uh, to reach Taiwan. But it, it's evidence about how much destruction will be rained down on Taiwan. And of course, from our point of view, most of the microchips that we use, certainly the really advanced ones, tend to come from Taiwan. Mm. So we can expect a jolt to the global economy if the Chinese fail to learn the lesson about the difficulty of invading other countries. I think invasions are now a thing of the past. You go all the way back to the Americans in 2003, uh, with the invasion of Iraq. That also was another failure. The British, the Russians or communists, and then the Americans invaded Afghanistan. They all got beaten as well. Yeah. You know, there is a pattern here. Yeah, you're right. Our politicians seem to be very slow learners. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should be in charge, Keith. Um, one thing I found interesting is the parallels that some are drawing between what's happening in Ukraine and the Cold War. Do you think those parallels exist? I think there is certainly... A bit of an echo there in the sense that obviously the Cold War was this tension between the American bloc and the Soviet bloc. And that's basically what we're back to now, mm. except the Soviet empire is not as big as it was in 1990-91 when the Soviet empire collapsed. Then a lot of the component parts of the Soviet empire left. Countries like Ukraine, Poland, for example, left that Soviet orbit and have really become implacable foes of Russia. So it's not a direct rerun. It's not a, a require direct equivalent because the Russia of today is not the Soviet Union that it would have been before 1990. But certainly it is a worry that we're still arguing with Russia in this way. It's a real, for me, a real worry. It shows that you know, we don't get that much progress necessarily in international politics. Mm. One tries to be optimistic. One tries to uh, see how progress is being made. But then you get an event like February of last year and suddenly we're back into the middle of the, the 20th century in forms of warfare that we thought had gone out of business in Europe. Yeah. In terms of how the geopolitical landscape has shifted in the last year, do you anticipate things to continue to shift and evolve or do you think the battle lines have been set, you know, this country's aligned with that country and that's never going to change? No, I, I don't see things ever settling down in that way. I think that everything is always very fluid. Obviously, China's an interesting country to watch vis-a-vis, -vis, say, India, because the Indians at the moment are broadly supportive of Russia and therefore an ally of China. But we know that the big struggle in the middle of this century 
will be between India and China. So the Indians are playing a double game. On the one hand, they want to retain their old alliance with Russia, which has gone back for decades. But at the same time, they're also wanting to build up their links with the West because they know that their next big headache is going to be China. And so they really want to have Western support against China. And at the moment, the West is happy to to share that Indian paranoia about China. But the Indians are just very flexible in whom they support at what particular time. Yeah, the article did talk about the countries straddling the middle ground. Are there any others aside from India? Well, the Indian one is the most obvious, but I think there are probably a lot of other countries that Mm. are also in the third world particularly. Yeah. China is making inroads into the third world. Russia is trying to get back into the third world. It was very big as a major player before the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was a country that was always willing to do deals with African countries, etc., and provided a counterbalance to the Americans, the result of which was that America and the Soviet Union both spent a lot of money in Africa trying to win friends and influence people. And then once the Soviet Union collapsed, pulled out of Africa, suddenly the Americans said, well, why do we need to worry about Africa? (laughs) The Russians have pulled out. Now, there's been renewed American interest in Africa because of China and the Belt and Road Initiative Mm. and the way in which China is building up its friends and we'll see Africa ultimately as a rival to countries like Australia in the supply of raw materials. Wrapping us up, you did touch on it a little bit before, but I'm keen to hear what your overarching prediction is for the next 12 months of war. A lot more violence and a lot more instability and the risk of nuclear weapons being used. Right. So that's... I'm sorry I can't give you any good news on this one, Sasha. (laughs) That's okay. Thanks for trying. Appreciate your insights as always, Keith. Looking forward to next week. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.